the rest of us. Uh, you can grab your Bible. We're going to be in First Peter tonight. Uh, I want to want to do something tonight. We're going to do it again tomorrow morning. Um, and so, so one of the kind of many things that are a little, little odd and different as we run multiple gatherings and kind of adjust in the world we live in today is uh, we, do, we do some things that normally we get to do like once in a big unified setting and we're going to do them uh, more than once in smaller settings and that's okay. And so uh, we participate every year in, in one of the really, I think it's a really practical and it's, it's a low cost in terms of uh, capital as well as resources and energy and time in uh, for the benefit that it provides kind of ministry uh, in, in what we call Christmas in Action. And so it runs through an organization called Samaritan's Purse. And here's the, here's the idea, that you take a shoebox, uh, you go, you fill it up with stuff that's uh, in a prepackaged list, and then uh, through the large numbers that they take and put together, they send them into all kinds of developing world contexts, uh, looking for places where there are young people who aren't going to benefit from like the American version of consumerism and Christmas. And so uh, they're going to experience a gracious gift that they've really never seen before in that kind of magnitude uh, and don't get to deal with in their day-to-day life. And so we can take something uh, as simple as, as $20 or $30 and uh, put it in a shoebox and, and create something that is really revolutionary. Uh, however, here's, here's what I think the concern about that can be that if you uh, want to just do something simple that takes 20 minutes of your time and $30 of your money so that you can kind of set aside any burden that you might have about the fact that there are uh, people less fortunate in other parts of the world or that uh, we as believers are called to be witnesses even to the remotest parts of the earth and that those people are part of our responsibility and gospel call, uh, then you can, you can grab a shoebox and go, ah, oh, you know, I'm a good person because I did this and I, I sent this shoebox out and it'll be okay because at least we did this one thing. Uh, and so we're not looking to kind of rest in that. However, we're looking to see this as an opportunity to partner with and watch the gospel go forth and utilize this as a catalyst for uh, recognizing the grace of God and the good news of Jesus in all parts of the world, in all contexts, and knowing that it would be uh, even a way to encourage uh, in our own church, in our own families, in our own selves, a passion for the gospel going forth, even even beyond our own context and our own self. And so um, I want to just take with you a moment as we have uh, some of them here tonight and many uh, undoubtedly, and I'll, I'll try to we'll try to take a picture so next week you can kind of see the volume of them because a bunch of them are going to come back next week and uh, we'll have uh, probably, probably give or take a hundred of these that we'll pray for uh, both tonight and tomorrow and then we'll load them up and take them into a distribution center which will package them and get them ready to go and load them up and send them into all different parts of the globe. Um, but we specifically want to pray that they would be an instrument of the good news of Jesus going out, uh, not simply a shoebox full of some uh, trinkets and toys, but rather that it would be a way and open door of opportunity to tell the world about the good news of Jesus Christ. All right, so why don't you join me as, as we pray and uh, pray over these as they're prepared to send them out tomorrow. Heavenly Father, I'm always, I'm always grateful for community effort 
church ministry, that we can do something that we together are participating in. And so I think about these shoeboxes and an opportunity and know so many of our brothers and sisters have uh, picked these up and, and gone to the work of putting some things together and putting thought into it and, and taking some of their money and using it. I pray that you would challenge and fashion in our hearts a desire to see that be about the goodness and glory of your name going forth and that we would be reminded that we have an opportunity in, in easy and practical ways and hard and deep ways alike to share the good news of who you are, that our purpose in life is to proclaim your excellencies. God, I pray that uh, this would be a way that that is done and that we connect with and partner with people who are all across the globe in different contexts than ours who get to use this as a way to communicate the good news of Jesus to places and people who have never heard it before. And I pray that your spirit moves in a strong and powerful way there, that it might uh, be an instrument to demonstrate your love, to show your grace, and to bring people to yourself. And so we pray that you help that, that uh, we know that in uh, those are, are toys and cardboard boxes. There's nothing special about them in and of themselves, but uh, through the power and working of your spirit that you might use them for great and glorious things. And so uh, be with that today and tomorrow as we, we prepare to send those out uh, as, as a power and testimony of our witness of you and your great name as it goes out into all the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, uh, excited about that. I do want to, uh, as you go to First Peter, we're going to continue our series there. Uh, I also want to take just, just one minute to mention something uh, real practical about this upcoming week. And so uh, let, me, let me kind of draw you into it this way. We typically, this time of year, as we get into the holiday season and Thanksgiving and Christmas especially, uh, have a lot of conversation about one of what I'm convinced is the best evangelistic opportunities that you have reoccurring in your life, which is family gatherings and family get-togethers. And you get some people that uh, you know are sitting at a table with you. They kind of have to, whether you like each other or not. Like, in fact, most family gatherings, there's like that kind of awkward tension between the cousins who don't really want to spend time with each other, but they have to, right? And so you're all kind of sitting down and doing that thing. And so in that, uh, I think one of the opportunities that we have again and again and and again, is to share the love and truth of Jesus Christ in wise, compassionate, and tactful and bold ways, right? And so uh, you have to kind of know who you are. Some of you struggle with being wise, compassionate, and loving. Some of you struggle with being bold. Uh, some of you, at different times, if you're like me, you struggle with both of those things simultaneously, right? And so uh, for some of you, maybe you need that kind of nudge. I, I know this week is different than any other Thanksgiving, probably in any of our lifetimes, right? Like whether or not you're going to get together with extended family, whether or not you can, uh, whether or not you've got a Zoom call with Uncle Bob or whatever that might look like, it, it's ultimately uh, you're still going to have some communicating opportunities where you either need to think about how can I tactfully care for them and tell them about Jesus or some opportunities where you go, you know, I need to step out of my comfort zone a little bit and talk about what really makes me thankful, the good news of Jesus Christ, the grace of God in the gospel. And, uh, and so in that, just know this, I'm praying for you this week. Um, I, I know you're praying for us, like we're, we got this cool opportunity to go back to Michigan, see some family, uh, do the same thing, and so uh, one of the things that is shared for us is we also are going to walk into that space where 
we uh, are no longer, I'm no longer Pastor Nick, right? I'm just Nick who has uh, family and brothers and cousins and in-laws that uh, need to know about Jesus and need to be encouraged with the good news of Jesus and need to uh, further walk in Christ and knowing that balance of how to talk to them about it. And then I'm going to give you two, like this is opinion, uh, and so you can disagree with me. Everybody's got the right to be wrong, and that's fine. But uh, two really practical things that I would recommend to you. You are going, I promise you this year, you're going to be tempted to want to fight about COVID and about politics with family members. Amen? I mean, I'm not saying don't talk about it. You can talk about it. It's, I mean, there's, there's no way you avoid talking about it. But you're going to be tempted to d- get drawn into some arguments there that are going to shift your focus away from giving people the good news of Jesus Christ. And so talk about it, but, but and maybe, like, I don't know, it depends on who you are, right? Like, maybe you need to have a plan for how am I going to make sure that in wisdom, compassion, boldness, mixing all of those things together for the sake of the gospel, I can make sure that in any topic I'm poised to relay and place emphasis on the grace of God in Jesus Christ rather than to get drawn into uh, anything else as more important than that, right? And so that's, that's free, my advice. I feel like I wouldn't be a man of integrity if I wasn't telling you that like I'm worried for many of you about that this week, that you're going to miss an opportunity there in some type of distraction. And so uh, use that, see that as a way to proclaim the good news of Jesus. All right, 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to finish up chapter 1, head into chapter 2. We have said that Peter writes a letter in 61, 62 AD, nearing the end of his life uh, and nearing a time where Christians in and throughout the known world are starting to face a mounting level of resistance and a mounting level of persecution. And the primary thesis of his writing to be sent out to many different churches was that we would be a people who not only survive, but that we greatly rejoice though we are distressed and in times of trial for a little while. That this beginning of his letter, verse 6 of chapter 1, is going to knock on this exact concept that out of it, he's going to over and over again come back to the same points again and again and again and say we are meant to be a people who in seeing our hope in Christ would not just exist during times of trial, but that we would greatly rejoice. That's his phrase, greatly rejoice. The thing about that is, and the reason that we're in 1 Peter right now is because contextually, that's vastly different than what our culture has brought to us as the message of 2020. Amen? Like, if you uh, even, even pay any attention to uh, any sort of media whatsoever, and really, it's, it kind of doesn't matter what flavor or what background or what perspective or slant or view it comes from, the prevailing nature of this year is that we would just be a people who could just survive it, right? I mean, that's like commercials now uh, about Christmas are coming out, and, and the general flavor of those commercials is buy a ton of crap because it's the only way you could possibly survive 2020, right? Like, I'm pretty clever. I mean, you know, the nice, like, blatant, straightforward consumerism that this has been a tough year, and so this new TV will make you feel better, right? Like, that's, 
the general consensus that we live in is that this year has been uniquely difficult. It's been circumstantially worse than anything else we could imagine. I, I think in that there's some, there's some real challenges to that thing that has been really promoted in that way. But that aside, here's, here's the thing that makes First Peter so relevant. He writes 2,000 years ago to a, a context that is objectively far worse than ours. Right? Christians are beginning to face mounting persecution. They're beginning to be imprisoned and killed on the basis of their faith. Uh, we said this is coming out just a couple years before a crazed Roman emperor named Nero is going to burn down the city, blame Christians, and then find them persecute them and burn them alive as a form of punishment. That in this, the mounting context that they face is worse objectively than what we face. And in that context, Peter's going to say, we should be a people that greatly rejoice. And so in this, he, he gives us something that is far different than the winds of culture then and the winds of culture now. And in that, I think, I think we have to look and go, Okay, how do we do that? Right? Because, here's, here's what I've noticed. Um, now, when we get to late parts of 2020, six, seven, eight months into uh, a dramatic shift in social and cultural norms according to all things that is COVID and the, the divisiveness and the difficulty of this year, you see an increase in depression, you see an increase in anxiety, you see an increase in fear, uh, you see an increase in judgment, you see an increase in belligerence, you see an increase in uh, people not wanting to communicate with one another, and uh, it just kind of happens all across the map in all different places and flavors in this, and we, even as the church, have been lured into this divisiveness and this sin and this onslaught of emotions that I think we could describe as anything but great rejoicing. Amen? That fair? So, so in that, here's where I think we spend our time, and I think this is what Peter is going to do throughout this letter, is he's going to take the bulk of his time and try to show us why we would do this and how we would do this, and why we can be convinced that such a thing is true and possible for us, even in circumstances that we might look at and go, no, this isn't how I would have drawn it up. Amen? So, so we looked over the past couple weeks and walked through chapter 1, and, and here's what I think we found in this, is his consistent pointing back to our great rejoicing is dependent upon, first and foremost, you knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you are someone who is saved. Amen? That, that in this, uh, in fact, you can see it here in verse 8 and 9. He says, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. 
And then he goes on to talk about how this was the salvation that the prophets prophesied of. And then he goes on from there and says, this is the salvation that we looked at last week was going to do some things in your life. It was going to be the salvation that would allow you to set your hope on a perspective that is more than earthly so that you would be someone who is thinking eternally so that nothing circumstantially could ultimately realize your hope or destroy your hope because your hope isn't here. He says that it is a salvation that was going to conform you to the image of God, make you holy like he is holy, that it would bring you more and more into his image, which would be a cause for great rejoicing. He says it is a salvation that was going to let you walk in a fear of the Lord instead of a fear of the circumstances or fear of judgment or fear of man or fear of anything other than God. And so out of this, his point again and again is going to be that you and I, when we know the grace of God through Jesus Christ can be a people who can greatly rejoice. And outside of that, there will always be some limitation to what that actually looks like. And so he's going he's gonna to continue on tonight and tomorrow. We're going to look at this in building out this salvation, and in particular, what it produces. And so I want to just draw out of the end of chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2, walk you through the scriptures and see, he's going to pick four things that come out of a life that knows the Lord, that is saved, and what does that look like in the way we ought to live. So we'll read, we'll talk. I just want to answer this question. This, this salvation right, that causes us to greatly rejoice What does it produce in the life of a believer? What what does our knowing Christ produce in us according to Peter? Here's, Here's where he goes. Pick up with me in verse 22. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls, that's a reference to salvation there, right? That you have a purified soul that you know the truth. He says it's for this first, for a sincere love of the brethren. Here's the first one. Salvation, knowing Jesus Christ produces in you a sincere love of the brethren. That's one another or other believers. Let's talk, okay? And I just... Get this out here, right? We can be a hard people to love. That's right. If you don't know that, you might be one of them. Okay? So I have, I have existed now in, in church ministry for the better part of 10 years, in church life for uh, going close to now 20 years. And, and what I've recognized time and time again is that In the context of the church, what is not all that dissimilar from the world, there are an easy and kind of gravitational pull for people that look like me, talk like me, act like me, and think like me, and I have an easy time getting along with you guys, right? Like if if we're in the same life position, and we kind of think the same way, we can hang out together, uh, I can like you and and even what most people would call love you in a sincere way, and it doesn't take a lot of effort, right? Right? Now, some of you who come from a different background or have a different context or think differently than me or walk through some different circumstances and situations, you're hard to love. Some of you can be really hard to love. And listen, I'm not not trying to say it's a problem with you. Like, 
I know that there's a bunch of you who think I'm great and a bunch of you who are like, <laughs> yeah, uh, you should try out my church, but like you got to deal with my pastor, right? And so in that, like we recognize that sometimes loving the brethren is sincere and it comes natural and it comes easy and sometimes it's a difficult task. And then add this to boot. Uh, one of the things that has occurred and really been brought to like a boiling surface point this year is that the church has a, has a tendency to be a sort of divisive place and uh, we have a tendency much in the rest of the world uh, dealing with the same sin of judging one another, kind of pressing on one another, hurting one another, not caring for one another, and then not doing a whole lot to restore said hurt. Instead, uh, what we tend to do is you tend to break off from the church and you get this kind of weird melded form of quasi-Christianity that's like, ah, I love Jesus, but I really hate the church, and I don't really want to be a part of that. And that's not Christianity at all, right? Like, you can't, you can't love someone and hate their wife, and yet over and over again, Jesus is going to refer to the church as his bride and his body. And so in that, I think you have to ask and answer this question, how do you, how do you love something when it can be so difficult, right? What do you do with that? Like, we can tend to be a people who jack each other up at times. Amen? And here's, here's the thing. If you have existed in the context of the local church for some period of time, you have been hurt by, disappointed by, and, and frustrated by church experience at one time or another. Amen? That's not true. You probably haven't been in church that long. Or... You have hurt, disappointed, and frustrated someone else in the church frequently. And so, so in that, here's, here's what Peter does, right? He doesn't make this a passive thing, but he continues on this way. He says, fervently love one another from the heart. That, that word, uh, fervently, implies action. Right? That it would be zeal and passion and forthright, and it would be an active place. And the word he uses for love there, it comes from that Greek word uh, agape, a self-sacrificing, a love of the will. It didn't have anything really to do with emotion, but rather that it would be a pressing in and an active desire of ours that if you want to be a person who could greatly rejoice even in times of trials, if you want to be a person who has a salvation and love of Christ that produces a love of the brethren, it comes from a fervent and active love of your will that you would set yourself into the process of loving one another, that it would be something that is active and self-sacrificing, it would be something that is continuous in obedience, and the thing about that is, is frequently beginning the practice of loving somebody often precedes the emotion and the kind of ease in which it is to care for someone, amen? And so, and so it works like this, right? You, you set your heart on taking a, a self-sacrificing position before someone and really caring for them and really loving them and really trying to understand them. And as time goes on, it begins to get easier and it begins to be something that your heart is drawn to because you want to be self-sacrificing. I, I think of it um, in, in this way, like 
a couple years ago, I started really, really for the first time consistently in my life, uh, exercising and and running. And I'm not going to say this about running because I hate running to this day, and it's horrible and like, man. But I'll say it about exercising, right? In the beginning, it was awful every single time because I couldn't breathe, and the next day I was sore. And I was frustrated with how little I could do. And uh, I even exercised with friends at times. And I could tell that they were capable of things that I wasn't capable of. And I just, just felt like this is discouraging and terrible. And I'd rather sit on the couch and eat pizza. I mean, I still, still waste a lot of time sitting on couches eating pizza. However, uh, here's what happened. Slowly over time, I would start to do things. And while I was doing them, I could still inhale. And that changes everything, right? Like when you can actually do something for a second, you can still breathe and you don't have that taste in your mouth like your tongue is going to fall out, right? Like all of a sudden, some things are a little bit different, right? And and much in the same way, like I think Peter's encouragement to fervently love the brethren, fervently love one another, is a recognition that sometimes it doesn't begin in our emotion to jump into that, especially if you come from a place where you got past history of hurt, or you got some reservation, or you kind of hold the church at arm's length, and it's like, I'll attend this place, but ultimately, I'm just going to, I'm just going to be there, but I don't really want to be a part of this. He's recognizing that in your knowledge of, in your salvation in Christ, it ought to produce in you a love for one another. He keeps going. Uh, he says, for, starting in verse 23, you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word which was preached to you. Now, I think this one is a recognition of what flows out of us mentally and emotionally when you really understand your position in Christ as someone who knows him. And it is incredibly helpful for our joy, though we first don't think it. It's this, that salvation produces in us a perspective that sees our limitations and God's enduring love and his enduring nature. Salvation produces in us a feeling of smallness and insignificance to the glory of God's name. Amen? Can you see how that would be, at first glance, uh, not something that ought to bring about a great deal of joy. In fact, uh, I would challenge so much as to think uh, you go to those Thanksgiving conversations and uh, begin uh, to draw out from that conversation that whatever uh, Uncle Johnny's life work is that he is so proud of is small and insignificant and in a couple generations no one will remember it and you'll be dead and there'll be a tombstone with your name on it in its place. It's going to go well, I promise, right? Make sure it's on Zoom. You can end that call afterwards. Amen? Okay. So, so 
Uh, in fact, uh, I think about a couple years ago, we were reading through Ecclesiastes and Solomon, the king of Israel, one of the most successful, maybe the most successful human being to ever live and walk the earth. It's nearing the end of his life, and he's writing about this, and he's writing specifically about the works of his hands and the things that he's learned and the things that he's accomplished. And he says, uh, in all of it, I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also happen to me. Why then have I been extremely wise? He said to him myself, this too is futility. This is meaningless. He says, I did all of this and learned all of this and got so far and I'm going to die just like that idiot down the street. That's vanity and it's worthless. For there's no lasting remembrance of the wise along with the fool since in the coming days everything will soon be forgotten and how the wise and the fool alike die. Because listen, you, you can do really great in your job, and you could do all of this stuff, and you can be really smart and have all these accomplishments, and, and you're just like the grass that withers and like the flower that fades away, and we're all just going to die, and you, like you don't remember your great-great-grandfather, will one day be nothing but a marker in the ground to be forgotten by the known world if, you last, if it lasts that long. Amen? That sound like a thing to greatly rejoice in? I didn't for Solomon. In fact, the very next verse is, so I hated life for the work which had been done under the sun was unhappy to me because everything is futility and striving after the wind. That in it, that nature has its, its first uh, lasting ideas in uh, a time of futility and, and even in depression. Like what's even the point? And yet Peter includes this because what Solomon waits until the very end of Ecclesiastes to write, Peter's recognizing and trying to move into uh, believers who are in times of trials, and it's that it doesn't matter if what we do here and now in our life is small and insignificant and futile. You and I are a child of the Lord who is enduring forever and over all things, and so your significance doesn't really matter. His does. And so you can rejoice in the fact that the word that was preached to you will not fade and fall away. That you could greatly rejoice in how small you are and how big God is. Therefore, he goes on, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, that in our knowing of Christ, we will greatly rejoice when our salvation produces a fleeing away from sin. Uh, he, he doesn't give an exhaustive list here. He just throws out some uh, pretty significant things that we're drawn to and, uh, and says, if you know and follow the Lord, your desires, your life is going to turn towards holiness. It's going to turn away from a desire to find your significance in selfish passions and self-oriented things and head to recognizing that you can greatly rejoice in the enduring nature of God. Now, couple things about this, because uh, we have a tendency then to do this uh, by way of self-discipline, which ultimately fails, or we have a tendency to throw our hands up and go, hey, um, 
Sin seems kind of fun, and in fact, in times of pain, uh, sometimes it's the only thing that really allows me to have some temporal source of rejoicing. In fact, Paul, the apostle, recognizes in his own life, though he is not only knowing the Lord, but is going and planting churches and writing a good part of the New Testament, is one of the most significant believers to ever live, says, for I know that good does not dwell in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I do the very thing I don't want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. He's recognizing his own nature and going that, that we, though we know in our, in our place in Christ that it would sanctify us and that it would begin to draw us closer, to close, closer and closer to him, closer in holiness, that ultimately we are a people who in our nature, in our sin, desire to do the things that our mind in Christ knows that we hate. In fact, he goes on and he says, I find then that the principle uh, that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully agree with the law of God in the inner person, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner to the law of sin, the law which is in, the, is in my body parts. Wretched man that I am. And here's, here's the second piece of this that we remember, right? That we don't do this automatically and we don't do this without fail. And uh, in our moving towards sanctification, oftentimes we're going to have these times emotionally where we're going to be drawn back to some things that we actually know that we ought to hate. He says this, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. That in Christ, we would be a people who desire to live lives of godliness with the knowledge that you and I won't do that in perfection. We won't. In fact, the, the Christian life is a process of stumbling towards sanctification, sin after sin after sin, until we one day die. And then it's done. And then you don't have to worry about it anymore. That's the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls in glory eternally forever. And yet, one of the things that our knowledge of Christ, that our position in Christ ought to provide for us and produce in us that will make us greatly rejoice in all times is a growing need and love to do what is holy and godly knowing that the joy that is produced in righteousness endures and exceeds the joy that is produced in sin. And boy, we are tempted to forget that again and again and again. So how do we stay reminded? This is how he says it. Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Here's the last one. And I would say 
of these the most important and really the catalyst to remind us of the first three over and over and over again is that in you, knowing Jesus produces a desire to know the truth according to his word. Let me say a couple things about this before we close. Uh, the, first, the first is this. Um, we, we have a simple process of how we do church gatherings here. Um, a lot of things we do okay with. There's some things that we don't do very well. There's some things that we uh, are pretty happy about the way we do. There's some things we need to improve on, like every church ever. And yet, in this, the basis of how we build our assembling and gathering together will always be dependent upon one thing. It's right here. Right? I, I'll give you some opinions about what you should do over Thanksgiving. You can hate those and think I'm a fool. That's fine. But that's because we're not going to rise and fall on my opinions or yours. It's going to be about this. Right? Because, because this endures because it teaches, because it corrects, because it encourages, it exhorts, it rebukes. It is the basis of how God would communicate to his people so that we might know how to live and how to greatly rejoice in his name. And so, uh, by and large, this is what we do. Every single week, you come here, and all I do is I just read some stuff, I explain it, I yell at you a bit, I read some more stuff, explain it. I do that again and again and again. Sometimes I tell a story so that you'll stay awake, but ultimately, it's always going to come back to this as primary and central. Why is that? Because we don't need to be motivated, and we don't ultimately need to have fun or be entertained here, and we don't ultimately need anything from a human perspective, no matter how good or bad it is. We need the enduring word of the Lord. We need to be a people who long for the spiritual milk of the word. Amen? And so, again and again and again, we come back to this, and here's, here's what I would note. Without this, without like newborn babies longing for the pure milk of the word, you will not grow. I mean, a, a baby without food, they die. I mean, that's not like rocket science, guys. They don't, in fact, they don't just continue to exist in their childlike form. That, that Peter's noting that you and I, in our position in Christ, are meant to be a people who would come back to this because you will not grow. You will not mature outside of this. You'll exist and you'll uh, find some ways to justify most of your actions and you'll uh, carve out a life of a certain persuasion or another based on the things that you think and some opinions and sometimes you'll use phrases about how uh, God has showed you things or you prayed about this or so and so said this and so it worked out and yet over and over again, the literacy in the scriptures by Christians uh, continues to decline throughout our country and the level of holiness continues to fall away in our country. The continue, the continue nature of us understanding our limitations and our small perspective over an enduring God begins to slip and fall away as a culture. The continuing nature of us being able to be people who greatly rejoice in all times suffers because we don't come back to the word of God. And so we don't, we don't love one another well. 
We don't see our position before the Lord well. We don't find ourselves in holiness well. And it's always because, like newborn babies, we haven't longed for the pure milk of the word of God. And so, so here's the final thought in this. We ought to be a people who can greatly rejoice, even in times of trial, through loving one another fervently. We ought to be a people who can greatly rejoice in times of trial, knowing how small we are in the hands of an infinite God. We ought to be a people who can rejoice in times of trial, knowing that we're battling against our flesh and sinful desires, walking ourselves into a position of holiness and godliness that produces lasting joy. And all of those things ought to come from a place that finds us grounded in the truth of his word, the word that was preached to you, the truth of the gospel, so that it builds in our life. And the last thing I'll say, that can be an acquired taste in our lives. Much, much like we mentioned exercise early, um, I think there are many in our culture, many in our church, uh, both tonight, and I'm going to say this again tomorrow, I'm convinced of this, who, if you would just commit to entrusting yourself to, to read the Word of God, and just discipline yourself to do it, and, and I don't know where you start or where you pick up, maybe, maybe it's 10 minutes a day, maybe it's an hour a day, maybe it's somewhere in between there in some way, shape, or form, and, and maybe for just once, you kind of drop those excuses, oh, I never read, or I don't do this, or I'm not good at that, or I don't know where I'm starting, and, and maybe ask for help if you really need that, but in it, that you would be someone who says, you know what, forget my emotion, I'm going to long for the truth of the scripture. Here's, here's what's going to happen. Day's going to go by. And maybe a week's going to go by, and then maybe, maybe even a month or two goes by. But God is going to begin to transform your life through it. I promise. I promise he will. And, and my promise doesn't mean much. He promises he will. Like a newborn babe, you will grow. You will mature. You want to walk in great rejoicing in times of trial. You find yourself grounded and longing for the word of God. Acquire that taste. Pray with me. Lord, Father, I'm so thankful for, for the brethren, the brothers and sisters in you, those who know you, those who you have saved by your grace and mercy, those who have placed their faith in you. Thankful for it and, and thankful to be a part of it. I pray that you would encourage and remind us to greatly rejoice in you. That we put away the, the noise and the chaos that is around us and uh, Lord, I know it's going to be a wild week. Thanksgiving will be like no other time before, and yet in it there is great opportunity 
for us to be a people who exhibit a hope, exhibit a joy that isn't found anywhere else. And it's not going to be because of great circumstances. It's going to be because we rejoice in you, that we have a love for one another, that, that we see ourselves as small. We're not the center of the universe, that you are, that we have a commitment to live lives of holiness and submission to you. And all of this comes from and flows from a love and a longing for the truth of the gospel, the truth of your word. Guide us in it, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name.